there have been a few people who have moved into Santa Barbara, uh, some friends, some people on staff, uh, about two or three people who are planning churches in Santa Barbara, which is really cool, and I've got to meet a few of them in the last year, and almost inevitably, the same question comes up, whether they're planning a church or they're moving here for another type of job. It's to tell me about Santa Barbara. What's something I need to know about Santa Barbara? My first reply is, well, there's a lot you can know about Santa Barbara, but a first importance, and this is usually what I've shared, especially with those church planners, uh, relationships are everything. In Santa Barbara, it's all about who you know, you know? Uh, Craigslist doesn't really hold any weight in this town. If you want a house, if you want a job, if you want a relationship, if you want anything, it's probably going to come through a network of meaningful relationships. And this is a small town, right? Uh, We can get that through uh, we can get those relationships, that sense of belonging through networking or co-working relationships or friends. We might get it from people in the same life stage. Perhaps uh, we share a hobby or a common interest or we just like to eat food or we're new parents and we gravitate towards people of like mind. Whatever it is, relationships have a lot of collateral here in a special and unique way. And because the town is small, I always tell uh, these, uh, some of the, I've told all of these church planners, make as many close friendships as you can and make zero enemies because you will see them at your kid's PTA meeting at preschool. <laughs> Speaking for a friend. But when, <laughs> when relationships are done right, they can give us a, a deep sense of belonging as Most of us know, even outside of Santa Barbara, they just work that way. And whether it's networking, coworkers, friends, romance, or people in the same stage of life, one of the tightest knit units of belonging that some of us have experienced is the biological family. And some of you know this, when parents come and visit you, it's it's incredibly helpful, usually. Or some of you, if you're in college, you always make that, especially in the first couple of years, you make that summer trip back home to see your parents, to see your siblings. If you have the pleasure and the luxury of living close to your family, it is a huge anchor point for some of you. If you've just had a kid and your, your parents are there and your kids have grandparents, this is the, one of the greatest things ever. And so it may surprise you to see how Jesus changes around some of the loyalties in life that we consider to be important. In fact, changing family is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I just want you to look at this passage that we just saw, uh, just very briefly, verses 19 through 21. I want you to read it again and see what Jesus is, is provoking here. It says, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. So we're talking about Mary his mother, talking about his brothers, so probably James, his half-brother, maybe even Andrew. They're looking for him. They can't get to him because of this crowd that is surrounding him, looking to be healed and ministered to and taught. And they send a messenger to him saying, your mother and your brother are standing outside. They're desiring to see you. And he answers them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Okay? Gnarly. My mama would have slapped me in the face if I said that to her. Jesus says, my, my mother and my brothers, or in other words, my, my, my deepest form of belonging and family are these people around me who are hearing the word of God and attempting to do it. 
what he would later go on to describe as the, the body of Christ or the church. And this isn't just, this isn't a fluke. This isn't just, you know, he didn't just have a bad piece of shawarma that day and say something that he probably shouldn't have said that will now live on the internet for ages to come. Like he would continue to say this and do it. His disciples would pick it up. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 21 through 22. It says, and going on from there, he, Jesus saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them, come and follow me. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed them, followed him. In fact, Peter would bring up just the, the sheer audacity of what Jesus was calling the disciples to later in Mark chapter 10, verse 28 through 30. It says, Peter began to say to Jesus, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. And he affirms it. Now, this is not to say that we are not supposed to love our normal relationships in the world. Our co-working, fam- uh, you know, our co-working relationships, our friends, our close friends, our best friends, certainly doesn't mean we're to neglect our families. In fact, the Bible has some pretty brutal and heavy things to say about people who neglect their biological families. I think it was Paul who said in, uh, to Timothy, uh, the person that does not take care of their relatives when they're in need is worse than an unbeliever. Or it's as if, if you're a Christian that doesn't take care of your family, doesn't love your family, it's as if you just totally didn't get it and you're not even a part of the church. The Bible speaks deeply about honoring the family. Honor your father and mother. This is the first of importance, and you will live a long time. It will go with you as been promised. Fathers, do not exasperate your children's huge onus upon these biological families to love one another and to be strong. Rather, what we see here is a shift in the primary loyalty, that wherever you came from, whether you were involved in uh, fr- uh, Wednesday night bingo and that's where you get your deepest source of relationship from, or whether it's your brother and your sister, biologically speaking, or whether it's your uh, fellow coworkers at Sonos or Procore or Cottage or Raytheon or whatever it is, or whether it is uh, a romantic connection, or whether it's your lifelong uh, childhood friend or even a a biological family member, there has, all of a sudden, when you got born again, been given to you a family that takes primary loyalty over everything else. The spiritual family in Christ. Jesus is alluding to this all uh, all throughout the Gospels, saying, once you are born again, you're not just born again into a personal relationship with Jesus. Certainly that but you're also born again into a new family. Again, not at the neglect of the other ones, but one has become of utmost importance. Your loyalties have been recalibrated to the spiritual family in Christ. Now, if only it were that easy. (laughs) We may miss the tug of a verse like this and read passages like these 
up because we're reading passages like these with a bit of a blind spot. Uh, You ever drive a truck that was way too big in a place that was way too small, like the De La Vina parking lot at Trader Joe's? Speaking for a friend. Uh, A blind spot refers to that area, right, in your view, usually behind you, that you can't see because the, the car is too big. For those of you that, have, that are lucky enough to have that little bumper cam, it makes things a whole lot easier. But the same is true of the spiritual life. In our spiritual lives, we have blind spots. Individually speaking, Chris Lazo, I have blind spots. Uh, as a church, Reality SB, as a, an own, our own culture as a church, we have blind spots. If we knew what they were, we'd probably try to get rid of them. But we don't know what they are because they're blind spots. We need to be told what they are. Not just at our church, not just our church, but our entire culture, our Western culture, also has ways of viewing things that are particular to us that also, like any other culture, leave us with blind spots. What am I talking about? The the inability to see certain things because we have been seeing things for so long a certain way. And the scriptures... This scripture in particular pokes at the very heart of one of the American church's biggest blind spots, what I'd like to call radical individualism. I'm making that distinction between radical individualism and individualism because individualism by itself isn't inherently bad or good. Uh, In fact, we get a lot of good things from individualism. We get human dignity. Each person actually matters, carries worth. Uh, Even the revivals of the the Great Awakening, that individual people were saved because they were forgiven of their sins and brought into life in Christ. They personally, this is a big deal. Individualism by itself isn't bad, but it does have a shadow side, which I'm calling radical individualism. And radical individualism is simply the worship of self over the group that you belong to. It's Worshiping and loving self over your responsibility to whatever group that you belong to. Radical individualism. This colors and shapes almost everything that we do. We almost cannot escape thinking that way. This is how powerful cultural lenses are. I'll just give you an an example. Uh, Joseph Hellerman in his book, When the Church Was a Family, writes about this blind spot specifically. And he gives a story about uh, a movie that came out in 1998 called The Titanic by James Cameron. I was 17 when that movie came out. I remember seeing it. I think it was the first movie that I remember seeing. Uh, And it was one of those movies that you saw twice, even though it was like one of the first two and a half hour movies to ever hit the scene. And Titanic took the the world by storm, took took, uh, Hollywood by storm. With its $200 million budget, it easily made that bill, uh, covered that bill by being one of the highest grossing films in history. It swept the Oscars, winning 11 of them, including the award for best visual effects, with a near-perfect 1 to 20 scale replica of that fateful ship. But what propelled the Titanic to the forefront of the American people's mind was not a story about a boat that hit a giant ice cube, nor was it about the visual effects, of which, you know, 17 years la- uh, some odd years later, we've seen even better ones. What propelled it to the forefront of most people's minds was a story about love. Some of you remember Jack, 
good old Jack, poor and impoverished, would never be able to afford a boat like that, won tickets to the Titanic through a poker game. Housed on the bottom level where all the other ruffians like him who can't afford things were housed, and he runs into a woman by the name of Rose. Rose was wealthy, came from a wealthy family, was on the upper echelons of the boat and the aristocracy, and she came onto the boat with a a companion who she was engaged to marry. Only she didn't love him. She didn't like him. She didn't particularly care for him. But her dad died. And with the death of her dad was also the future of their wealth. And so her mother arranged the marriage so that they would have a chance. Their family would continue to have the wealth that they've always understood and known. And they would also continue to have their social place in the culture, uh, in that upper culture of, of that time. And so she was engaged to a man she didn't like for the sake of her family. And you know how the story goes. They see each other, they start dancing, other things happen, the ship hits an ice cube, everybody's dying, and she chooses who? Jack. And you could almost hear, I I still remember it, you could almost feel people on the edge of their seat just egging him on, don't choose that rich guy, don't obey your mom, choose Jack, it's Leonardo DiCaprio in his prime, he's amazing, how can you resist him? Choose Jack, and she chose Jack, and the world went Buck wild. Even when Jack died in the ocean, she would choose rather to be single than to marry that other guy. And it swept the Oscars, garnered more money than almost any film in history, and propelled it as one of the biggest Titanic movies of all time. I think it's interesting that that same movie probably would not have gotten off the ground in first century Greece. I think if, Jew, uh, if Jesus grabbed a, a bunch of Jewish brothers and Aramaic-speaking friends and uh, Arabic-speaking friends and crowded a theater that you could have heard a pin drop in that theater. The reason is, in his world, you would have had a different lens. If ours is individualistic, where happiness depends on the individual, whatever will make me happy, in his world, the group took priority over the individual. And of the best groups was the family, specifically brothers. That's why the Bible has so much about brotherhood. It's not talking, you know, casually about it the way that we would do, slap each other on the back, be like, hey, bro. Like, brotherhood was the single most powerful bond in that day. In our world, the worst thing that you could do is to be untrue to yourself, to not pursue happiness the way that you think that you're supposed to. We use words to describe that, being inauthentic, not being true to myself. And when we're not tracing the things that make us feel like we're being true to ourselves, which usually amounts to career, romantic love, and perhaps adventure, we feel like we are robbing ourselves. It's not because we read those things in the Bible, it's because we have a cultural lens like everybody. Joseph Hellerman in his book writes, we in America have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, whether it's church or family or friends or neighbor, for example, to which we belong. 
the immediate need of the individual is more important than the long-term health of the group. This is our lens. That's how we view everything, even if you don't realize it. It's such a powerful Western value. But in the New Testament world, a treacherous act would be to betray your sibling. And think for a second about that blind spot. Now, the two are not inherently good or bad, whether it's a collectivist society or an individualistic one. They're neither inherently good or bad. They're just different. But if we want to grasp the power with which Jesus is speaking to you and me, we have to hear it through his lens, lest the power escapes us. And here's how the blind spot of individualism gets in our way of hearing Jesus and following Jesus. If our lens is everything boils down to the personal decisions I make that make me the most happy, you can see where that might go awry. We can read about Jesus and completely pass over all the commands to love one another, only looking for verses that are about our personal therapeutic relationship to Jesus. That's truly a lot of spirituality in America. Jesus makes me feel good about myself. He forgives my sins. He takes the guilt away from me so that I don't feel bad because I don't want to feel bad. I want to feel good. Jesus makes me feel good. So I go to church. I get that shot of forgiveness. And Monday I feel better about myself to do whatever I want that will make me the most happy. And anything else that comes along tends to be a throwaway. Service, involvement, engagement, prayer, scripture reading. It's all about whether it just makes us happy, whether it entertains us, even the church. In fact, some of us might say we are so devoted to Jesus. But church, that's like an if. I had a friend and a former pastor of mine named Dan Kimball in Santa Cruz who wrote a book that perfectly summarizes uh, a lot of our sentiments. They love Jesus, but not the church. As though the two could be separated. We love Jesus, but not the church. All of this because of a cultural lens which says, the most important thing is my personal happiness. Now in the New Testament world, the worst thing that you could do to yourself or to the world around you was to betray a sibling. This was unheard of and scandalous. And this is why Jesus' words would have been met with a gasp. When he says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Those are my true brothers and sisters and and mothers and fathers. Jesus is calling for nothing short of putting our own agenda aside, whatever that may be. Not just for him, but for this new family that he has created around you what's often in the Bible called the bride of Christ or the house of God or the body of Christ or simply the church, which is more than just the four walls of a building, more even than just a paid staff or a speaking pastor, although it certainly includes some of those things. It's that body of believers unified around Christ together at the local level in love and commitment. Jesus says, you get born again, follow me, you're jumping into a family that I'm creating. And so we just got to look at it through the right lens. In first century Greece, 
In first century Rome and first century Israel, this would have been absolutely unmistakable and scandalous because Jesus would have been calling people to leave their deepest source of security and loyalty, that of their family, in order to follow Jesus. For us, it might take on a different form. Perhaps our deepest place of belonging is our own personal happiness and what will make us happy. And Jesus to you would say, I've called you to leave your clinginess to that in order to pursue my agenda for your life. And not just me, but to enter into the family that I've created as well. That takes precedence over Chris Lazo's desires for his own life. And that, my friends, is a hard pill for American Christians to swallow because we love our happiness. We read into the uh, verses of the Bible a story about us, me, a story for me, a plan for me, a therapeutic relationship for me, ways for me to make decisions about me. And we may even come to church or involve ourselves with church, but for reasons that involve around me, perhaps we want to get entertained Preach better. Worship harder. Provide programs. I'm not talking about you. Speaking for a friend. All in the name of individualism and probably consumerism. The church is just yet another thing right next to Google, Amazon, and Apple, and Whole Foods that's there to provide us with another outlet to make us happy. Listen, there's nothing wrong with being happy. I'm happy right now. But sometimes a Christian life is not always happy. Sometimes life isn't always happy. And human beings need something that goes deeper than personal happiness and fulfillment to get them through the trials. The American church is often marked more by radical individualism and consumerism than by its Christ-commissioned, spirit-empowered calling to be a family. Now, I understand some of the reasons why we would choke on that. I have no doubt that there's people in this room that love Jesus, deeply and emphatically curious about Jesus, want to know Jesus more, maybe even want to be conformed to his image, but have real misgivings about the church. Some of you, your rallying cry has been uh, what was made famous on YouTube uh, some years ago, Uh, emphasizing that Christianity is about a relationship to Jesus, not a religion. You hear that there too, right? It's about me and Jesus only. It's not about all that other stuff. And I understand because I too was a skeptic that hated the church. Been uh, kicked out of a few churches myself in my time. Not recently. But in years past, made a lot of messes and left bitter, hardened, calloused, very angry at anything that smacked of institutionalism or leadership or groupthink. And I'm sure that in a room this size, there's probably people here that 
when you think of the church, you think of uh, something other than warm feelings come up in your heart. And I'm, I'm not here to, to guilt trip you on that. I'm here to validate those real feelings because I get it. In church, I've been hurt more by people than anywhere else in my life. At reality, not by you, you're great. But at reality, in my you know, 13 years at reality, I've been more hurt by people at my own church than anywhere else. Some of you have too. For some of you, you're shocked that people could say the things that they could say and do the things that they could do and still be a part of a church. And some of you have done the same thing to others. It's not just from people in the church. It's from leaders in the church that we've been burned by, neglected, ignored. Leaders have wielded their power in corrupt ways, toxic ways, unhealthy ways, have used their influence for themselves at times and not for the glory of God and for the well-being of his people. Leaders have made mistakes and you have taken the brunt. And over the last 13 years, I have done that too. The church is a big old hodgepodge of mess. It's just a mess. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. It's a bunch of naturally hostile enemies gathering together and trying to do life. Think about a room like this. I know some of you. I have listened and talked with you and hung out with you. And so I just know by experience. Maybe you don't. But in a room like this, there are people with such varying opinions on everything in life. Ranging from political to theological to simply the way that you should raise your kids. That if you were in a room together by yourself, you'd be at each other's throat. And here you are sitting next to each other, listening to the word of God and singing to him. The church is certainly not perfect. But I think that that's half the beauty. Not to validate the mistakes and the sin that's in it and the toxicity that sometimes arises it, uh, in it. We have a responsibility to deal with those things because Christ cares. But we should also see that Christ seems to work in our imperfections, not apart from them. And the church is not what it is because the church is perfect. The church is what it is because Christ is perfect and Christ had a plan. And it's often in the conflict and in the pain and in the disappointment and in the dismay that God does his greatest work. Isn't that what the gospel is? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 16, but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Isn't that an incredible verse? Paul is saying, those of you that were far from God, you were on the fence apart from Jesus, have been brought near to him without any merit or goodwill of your own. Jesus did it simply by shedding his blood and bringing you close to God. That's enough to rejoice right there. For a hoodlum like me, a scoundrel like me, can walk into the presence of God free from shame and guilt and say, I belong to you. But the gospel doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, for he himself is our peace, our peace, who has made us both one. Who's he talking about? You guys. 
He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And listen to this. And he creates in himself one new man in place of two. He takes natural born hostile enemies, puts them together and creates one person out of them. Calls that the bride of Christ. This is more than a social club. This is, day by day, the power of the living God being put on display in wicked, sinful, messed up, broken human beings like Chris Lazo. I still can't believe 11 years from now that I'm still standing behind this podium. I'm the last person you would have ever hired. So is the case with many of us, right? God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And he's chosen you. But whenever you put a group of foolish people together in a building, and even worse, get them to share life together Monday through Saturday, you're going to see some ugliness. You're going to see some blind spots. You're going to see some hostility. And you may still be asking yourself, okay, that's a great vision of the church. I love that. Still not convinced that I want to be a part of it. I love Jesus. It's all the other people that I have a problem with. Listen, I get it. I'm right there with you. So if you're asking, why should I invest myself and commit myself to the body of Christ? Let the answer for you be that it was Jesus' idea. Say, I think in a room like this, I think there's at least handfuls of people who legitimately love Jesus. Who even if you don't have all the answers don't know what the next steps are, have legitimate concerns about everybody and everything, you at least know this, Jesus is good. And I love him, and I want to be more like him. I think there's a lot of people in this room who legitimately want to try and follow Jesus because you have been enamored and captivated by that man. And so if anything, think of this. This is Jesus' idea. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. This wasn't man's idea. Even though humanity maybe gets a hold of it sometimes and messes it up. This is Jesus' idea. It was from the beginning. It's his plan and he's got a hold of it. In Colossians, Paul said, Jesus is the head of the body, which is the church. He's the boss, the senior pastor, the ruler of the church here. Paul would go on to say that the head from which the whole body, when it's nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Meaning, we weren't meant to be stagnant. We weren't meant to float around. It's through the church that Christ ordained for you to grow. And the only way that you can grow is to be connected to the head and connected to the rest of the body. When each part is working properly, I love that in Ephesians chapter 4. Anybody here of the age where things start working properly? gets frustrating. I can't help you. (laughs) But Jesus says about the church, each part is meant to work properly and Christ can do that. And when each part in the body is working properly, meaning you, all parts of the body, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In other words, it's assuming that all of you have to be involved in the body life of the church for the whole church to be healthy. We need you. 
You're actually important. You might have been rejected from every baseball team in your childhood. Just hating the moment that you had to line up on the fence because you're the last to be chosen. God chooses you. And there's a part for you to play in the body of Christ. And we depend upon it. And you are members of God's family, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. That when you, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you say, I want to follow Jesus by, faith through, uh, by grace through faith. You are made a member of the body. It's not by filling out a form. It's not by living a perfect and righteous life. It's not by attending church over and over for a certain amount of times. It's by sheer unadulterated faith in Jesus Christ that compels you to say, I love everything about you and I want to go where you go and do what you do and obey you. Immediately, the Holy Spirit transforms you from the inside out. You are made a part of the body of Christ. Paul goes on to say, together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. He's what all of this is based upon. He's the only thing that could uphold it or sustain it. The same one who caused the universe to fly into existence by the word of his power also holds together everything by the word of his power. And he holds the church together by his word as well. And we are carefully joined together in him, Paul says, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. I love how uh, that same passage would go on to say that we were meant to house the Spirit of God. So we're not just being knit together, we're not just growing in God, we're not just being built up in love, but we are also the dwelling place of God's Spirit in this life right now. This is incredible. What a vision of God's idea. In fact, so sterling is this, that Paul would say in Ephesians 3.10 that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's another, uh, rulers and authorities is another way of speaking about fallen angels and demons. You hear what he's saying here? Through the church, following Jesus, the wisdom of God in the story that he's been weaving together is being put on blast to all the demonic principalities of the universe. And they can do nothing about it. Jesus was the, the one who said in Matthew 16, 18, I'm not just the one who's building the church. The gates of hell should not prevail against it. There is nothing that the devil can do to stop what God is doing. And so brilliant is his plan. So beautiful is his idea. So great is his purpose that Paul says he is putting his wisdom on display through you to demons and there's nothing they can do. They're in the nosebleeds with their hands tied behind their back simply watching how God is pushing back the darkness and taking land for himself. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Ephesians 3.20 verse 21. This is why I think Paul just kind of explodes into a hymnology of praise. He goes on to say, Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we ask or think. Anyone, anyone in here ever read that verse? Sounds like you might have read it for the first time because you're so quiet. Look at this promise. God is able through his mighty power at work within us as a body. God's power, he's able through his mighty power at work in us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. How many of us have not asked a single thing of God in the last week? We haven't even asked one thing and there's promises like this to the church saying, 
you don't even know what is available to you. I think it's time for Christians to start marching through streets in Santa Barbara and asking for God to release low-hanging fruit. I think it's time for Christians to believe in the promises of God, walk through town and start asking for strongholds to be torn down, to be asking for families to be restored, to be asking for people to turn from darkness, to ask for blinders to be fallen off, to ask for the poor to be fed, to ask for the city to be changed, to ask, ask, ask. Why? Because there is a power lying latent within each of you as a body together that you don't even know you have. It's sitting there able to do more than you can even imagine, ask, or think. Simply waiting for somebody who has the audacity to ask. And in the end, see this in Revelation 19, when Jesus returns, whether in this generation or the next, or in the next, or the next, we will rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, another word for the church, has made herself ready and they will be consummated one together forever. As John the Apostle says, when we see him, we will become like him for we will see him as he is. But in the meantime, in the interim period, here's the church. In all of its messed up, blemished glory, all of our broken relationships, all of our infighting and passive-aggressive remarks and uh, insider uh, gossip and all of the things that trip us up, including our blind spots and Jesus sitting on his throne looking at us and saying, I'm going to make something awesome out of you. So if you're still wondering what the incentive is, how's this? That the grace of God has chosen the church to be the vessel by which Christ Jesus makes his kingdom visible to the world. In spite of our failures and often in the midst of our failures. Which is why I think Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay we have this treasure in broken vessels, jars of clay. Why? So that we can see that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to ourselves. The story of Christ's church has been weaving itself in and out of history for centuries. By people who realize the eternal purpose of God and simply want to jump in. Jesus' fledgling collective group multi-ethnic mixture of Galileans and Gentile, uh, Gentiles and Jewish people. A group of nobodies would eventually bring the powerful Roman juggernaut to its knees. Simply by loving people, following Jesus, and doing it through suffering. I know it's 2,000 years later, but brothers and sisters, the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in this church. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is filling your mortal body and giving you everything that these first saints had when they were walking to. I want to give you a way forward and uh, I'm going to ask Robert and the team to come out as we sing. For those of you that are looking for just a way to step out into this, I think part of that, that first step, is just simple self-awareness. Just by recognizing how we see things. 
We often see things in terms of ourselves, right? That doesn't mean we have to hate ourselves or not be happy. But to see that that colors certainly a lot of things that we do. And how our radical individualism has shaped millions of American Christians' view of God, others, the church, and has, at some times, in the shadows, zapped the church's strength and made us inward-focused. And for us to see this afternoon that there's more to the kingdom life than simply our own personal happiness. Following God, you'll be happy at times. But there's times that you're not going to be happy. There's going to be times that you lose a lot of stuff. There's going to be times that you're suffering, that you're in despair, that you're depressed, that you're lonely, that you're broken. And the kingdom of God will remain with you. And I want to argue today that not only is there more to the kingdom life than, the, than personal happiness, but the kingdom life is far more compelling than just what makes you personally happy. And if you were to step into the story of what God is doing in and around you, you might find something worth living for that can stretch the capacity of your spirit and understanding than simply your own desires. That's the first step. Recognize that it's not all about you. Second step is get involved. And don't just get involved with a short-term commitment. Plan at the beginning to commit. Plan to commit to a local church at the beginning before it gets difficult. Remembering that Christ never gave up on you when it was difficult. And listen, it doesn't have to be this church. You might be visiting here. You might be like just checking it out and you're like, I hate this place. You talk too long. You yell too much. You spit. Hey, totally cool. I get it. But find a church somewhere. If this isn't the one, find one somewhere. There's great churches in the city of Santa Barbara. God is doing an incredible, powerful work in our city. If it's not this one, find one. Prayerfully commit, not by the uh, criteria that we sometimes use, that of commercialism and individualism, but say, God, where would you have me be? As you unfold the unraveling power of the kingdom of God, what local spiritual community would you have me be? And then commit to it and give it your everything. And God bless you. Now, for those of you that call Reality Santa Barbara your home, commit to it. And I aim to light a fire under you that you have not experienced for a long time. Step into your family. Be committed to Christ's body because Christ is committed to his body. And this is the body, a local expression of what God is doing all over the world. One of the blessed tasks of every Christian in this town is to say, God, what are you doing through your church in Santa Barbara? And how can I join you? I believe that for a lot of you, the moment you take that step is the moment that a whole world will open up to you. And I bless you on your journey, but I also want to go with you on it. So let's step into the unknown. Step into faith and see what God would have for our church in this town. Amen.